Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Natalie Dawson is the executive director of Audubon Alaska, a conservation organization dedicated to protecting habitat for Alaska's birds and wildlife. Before joining Audubon in 2019, Natalie was the director of the Wilderness Institute and a professor of wilderness studies at the University of Montana. Prior to that, she worked as a research biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey at the Alaska Science Center, a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska, and a public policy fellow with the American Institute of Biological Sciences in Washington, D.C. She received her Ph.D. from the University of New Mexico while studying the impacts of forestry practices on the endemic mammals of the Tongass National Forest. I contacted Natalie after seeing her appearance in the film Understory, which features her and two friends as they seek to encounter and understand the logging practices that have long taken place in the old-growth temperate rainforest of the Tongass. We talked about Natalie's experience in Alaska, her role in the aforementioned expedition, the importance and distinction of old-growth forests, the political and economic situation surrounding the Tongass National Forest, the impact of other extractive industries across Alaska, and the work that Natalie does with Audubon as well. If you're a new listener, welcome and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode and please share the show with a friend who might be interested. All right, I'm joined by Natalie Dawson, PhD. Natalie, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. Thanks for inviting me, Dylan. It's great to be here. Good. Yeah, I you know, I saw you on um the documentary film Understory, which uh was well we'll get into that in a bit, but I, I really enjoyed the film and your your role in it. And so I'm excited to catch up with you. I've talked with uh, one other person associated with Audubon, and uh, I love people that love birds, I'm finding. I don't, I don't know too much about birds, but people who <laughs> who do love birds are pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty amazing <laughs> creatures, and uh, I like to travel large landscapes, and so do birds, so we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should state that you're the executive director of Audubon Alaska for the last couple of years now? Yeah, it's just about three years. And so in my job, I am the executive director of the state office of Audubon, Alaska, and a vice president with the National Audubon Society. Wow. So you know J. Drew Lanham, I'm sure. I do, yes. Okay. Um, I think we talked about that a little bit in our email. Yeah. I also had the um, pleasure of uh, having him as one of my teachers in a writing, a creative writing seminar a few years ago at Breadloaf. And Oh, nice. Before I ever joined Audubon. So I have, yeah, crisscrossed with him and his amazing uh, leadership in a couple different capacities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's great. I had him on a while back and really enjoyed his latest book. Uh, but let's talk about you. 
Um, so you've been with Audubon for some time now, right? What? How did you get here to this current role? Yeah, um, my my uh, professional path has been, um, you know, I think a bit wandery for some folks. When you look at it, I, I uh, have a background in research. So I started out as a wildlife biologist and I spent a lot of years on really remote islands and in remote places in Alaska and other places in the Northern Arctic. And um, through those years of reflection and spending long hours by myself in the rain and snow, um, I you know, started to question what role research has in informing how people um, interact with and value the natural world. And so I decided to kind of transition into a career in education because I felt like um, working with students and adults and, and kind of expressing that wonder of the natural world with through curiosity um, was, a, was a path I wanted to take. And so for many years, I was also an educator. And um, more recently, I um, wanted to go back into public policy and advocacy work because I was starting to see certain narratives perpetuated about public lands and waters and wildlife um, that I didn't feel were true to the ecosystems that I knew and studied and had learned on for so many years. So um, in 2018, I decided to leave my academic position. At the time, I was the director of the Wilderness Institute at the University of Montana, and I ran a wilderness and civilization environmental education program. And I decided to leave the university to pursue a career in advocacy. And so I um, became the executive director of Audubon, Alaska, and allowed me to return to Alaska, where I had lived for many years prior to my time in Montana. Okay. Wow. So you've got a pretty uh, diverse background and perspective. What uh, You mentioned some of the narratives that you were seeing surrounding public lands that you that were concerning to you. What would that be? Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say leading up to the 2016 elections in the political sphere um, in the Western United States, we started to hear a lot about um, the privatization of public lands and this push to return federal public land to private ownership, um, either through states buying land back from the federal government or the federal government being asked to give land to private entities or put it up for sale. And um, the reason for that was uh, the value of land. You know, they, um, the people pushing for these uh, privatization of public lands campaigns were really looking at it as, you know, land in the West is worth a lot of money. Let's privatize it so it can be sold off and communities mm -hmm. can make money off the land. Um, and as, as you know, the public lands in the United States are this really complicated, but kind of amazing common space. Um, it, there's a writer who I followed for many years that calls them an island of social justice and a sea of um, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think it's so convoluted, like the, the information, misinformation, different perspectives on what to do with public lands and how they should be managed. And it's one of the things that really resonated with the film that you were in, Understory, that we mentioned previously, in which you and two good friends, uh, a botanical illustrator and a local up there to British Columbia, uh, Prince of Wales Island, 
a salmon fisher, she, uh, you, all three of you go out and kind of intentionally try to encounter what logging, what clear-cut logging looks like in the Tongass National Forest. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's a perspective that most of us won't ever get because most of us don't even know where that is or can't point it out on a map. So I love films like this uh, that kind of show what's happening on ground level and just the raw scale of extractive industry. Um, when did you guys film that, by the way? Was that just a couple years ago? It was, yeah. Um, we fi- we did the film in uh, the spring of 2019. So actually, I had been with Audubon for a few months when Elsa um, decided to pull together the sailing trip that's the feature of the film. Um, but as she mentions in the film, we had done prior work together was very organic how it all came about. Um, Elsa was helping an organization that I helped found um, doing some website design for us. And, you know, she was born and raised on Prince of Wales and was really interested to spend time walking through the forest. And somehow she learned that I had spent a lot of years walking through the forest um, on Prince of Wales. So she found me and, and called me while I was still in Montana And um, we decided to put this trip together. And then I mentioned to her, you know, I know this absolutely wonderful, inspiring young woman, Mara Menahan, who was a former student of mine um, from one of my first years of the wilderness program at the University of Montana and is also a good friend. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we brought Mara to illustrate, you know, some of the really amazing detail of the rainforest that is Um, best captured, I think, by an artist's eye. And so we pulled that together. And then, you know, thankfully, we were also able to work closely with Marina Anderson, who's um, a really inspiring leader of um, the organized village of Kassan um, in her Haida community. And so it, it just, we didn't like intentionally set out for it to be a women of you know a women inspired and led film but that's how it happened and it it was just really fun like it it came together organically we didn't know if anyone would end up watching the film or listening to the story and it's been pretty incredible to see and hear the feedback um because the Tongass campaign to to protect old forests is not new it's been around for a long time yeah well it was a really cool format having the three different perspectives of y'all you know you're looking at it from sort of a naturalist, ecological scientist kind of viewpoint. And then you've got Mara, who's illustrating what she sees and thinking about form and color. And then Elsa, who is bringing the local perspective of like the salmon run. And she's kind of thinking of the geological scale as well. So I thought it was a, a really cool way to do it. Let's kind of set the stage for for the problem here and, and what Tongass National Forest is and what it represents. Yeah, um, the Tongass National Forest is one of our older uh, national forests in the country, um, originally established in the early 1900s when the United States was setting aside forest reserves. So it, it was originally a forest reserve and then became a national forest, part of the national forest system. Um, and national forests are working landscapes in some ways. You know, there's been a always been a history of recreation and timber harvest. Um If we step back even further, though, of course, these are the ancestral lands of the Tlingit, Shimshian, and Haida peoples um, who have been in Southeast Alaska for time immemorial. And so lands and waters have complicated history of ownership and stewardship, and the Tongass is no exception. 
Um, for many years, the Tongass National Forest was seen by the state of Alaska and the federal government as a way to bolster the economy of Alaska through timber production. So it was seen as a forest that would provide timber to um, the United States and the world and therefore help strengthen the case that Alaska should become a state, which um, Alaska finally became a state in 1959. Right before statehood, people started to really look at the books on what this timber economy in Southeast Alaska looked like. And the reality was it didn't pencil out. Um, it was so yeah. expensive to pull those trees off of this incredibly remote archipelago where they have to be logged, they have to be put on ships, they have to be sent from those ships to another port. And each one of those steps is thousands of dollars, not to mention the roads that are needed to be built in order to access the timber. So the Tongass timber program never made money. Um, for many years, they had to subsidize it through federal subsidies. And in these later years, even into the 2000s, they've had to subsidize the Tongass timber program upwards of $20 million a year. So the real issue when you look at it is you have this public space, this, this national forest, um, old growth rainforest, the, the largest remaining temperate rainforest in the world that's being logged at a loss to the average American taxpayer. Um, and on top of all of that, the wood doesn't stay in the United States. Most of it travels overseas where it's used um, by other countries and other timber production materials. And so we tried to pull that all together in the narrative of that film in a way that shows, you know, through our journey, the journey of the forest as well. Yeah, and I think you did it successfully. I mean, whether you're looking at it from an environmental or an economic perspective, neither one makes sense. It's not like you're saying, well, yeah, we're doing damage to this old growth forest by clear cutting, but we're making a bunch of money. It's like, no, we're actually not. Taxpayers are losing money every year doing this. And as you show in the film, um, almost, I think I read the percentage, over 85 or 90% of this is going to Asia. Yeah, yep, exactly. And it's not being milled locally. You're, we're shipping it off as uh, entire logs. It's It's insane seeing the footage that you captured of what the scale of this is on a massive foreign freighter loaded up with what looks like toothpicks, I think you guys call it, from your perspective, but it's six, seven, eight hundred-year-old trees, right? Yep. Yeah, it's pretty disturbing stuff. Um, I mean, to look at, at both sides of the equation, you know, forests do need to be managed, right? We always say that. Our, our forests are in need of management. We have, I think the Forest Service has identified about 80 million acres of, of forests that are overgrown and in need of um, of management in the form of timber harvest, what what would be a better alternative to the way that things are being done now in Tongass National Forest? Would selective clearing be viable? Would um, I mean, are there other methods that would be more sustainable? Because the clear cutting is just so violent and um, not not effective. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Dylan. And, you know, the argument for industrial clear-cut logging in Southeast Alaska has been it's the only economically viable way to remove timber off the forest. Yeah. And so 
if we change the economic equation and we start valuing the forest in other ways, say for carbon sequestration or wildlife habitat or as a climate resiliency area, then we could totally shift how management is done on the Tongass. Unlike a lot of other national forests um, where timber management is considered kind of part of the regime to reduce fuels for fire risk, the Tongass is an old growth temperate rainforest. So the way it's evolved is basically over the last 8,500 years or so since the glaciers scraped their way off of the ground and allowed the trees to grow, this forest has adapted to um, infrequent disturbance. The, the largest natural disturbance on this forest is what we call a microburst or an area where like a wind event will happen and blow down some trees. Oh, blow down. Okay. And, yeah. and that blowdown is the natural cycle. It opens up areas in the canopy, new trees grow back. Um, but the idea of introducing what we've done now, you know, over, over a million acres of the forest is we've introduced an entirely new regime, right? We've clear cut hundreds of thousands of acres of land and opened up the canopy into a new kind of forest that we don't really know what kind of shape it will take in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And at the same time, current management has focused on getting the next round of cuts out. So they've been managing the second growth, those new trees for timber economy, not for say habitat protection for wildlife or sustainable deer harvest or traditional and cultural practices. So there's a ton of opportunity to do that. It would be simply, you know, reviewing and maybe renegotiating the forest plan, those that document that governs how the Tongass National Forest is managed. Each national forest in the US has one of these plans um, in combination with, you know, public input and um, research to understand what the state of the forest actually is right now, because that's another big thing that's missing is there hasn't been a lot of research done in Southeast Alaska for the last couple decades on, you know, what's happening to the wildlife, um, what's happening to our salmon, uh, what's happening to the migratory bird stopovers that have been clear cut in estuary areas. So there's a lot of questions, which is as a researcher and a teacher, like a great opportunity <laughs> for learning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a couple things there. If you want to see, I know you're familiar with these folks, but um, people listening, if you want to see some of the beautiful wildlife in this area, first of all, follow Natalie and Audubon, Alaska, but there's a fellow named Ian McAllister who works with uh, Pacific Wild, uh, renowned landscape photographer, wildlife photographer, and he captures the um, the coastal wolves, Alexander Archipelago wolves? Yes, yeah, Alexander yeah. Archipelago wolves. Yeah, that feed on salmon, uh, really, really unique creatures, and spirit bears, you know, bald eagles, all the incredible wildlife in this, in this part of the country that, uh, you know, I don't think people realize how vast this landscape is and how much it supports. It's so true. Um, for many years, I studied island endemics in um, the region, in coastal British Columbia and southeast Alaska. And endemic means an animal or plant that's unique to a particular place. And southeast Alaska is home to more endemic mammals, if we just look at mammals, more endemic mammals than any other place in uh, North America, um, in wow. the northern part of North America, as far as we know. And that's um, largely because of the 
recent um, glaciations and the diversity that's been driven by those glaciations. And so the Alexander Archipelago wolf is an example of one of those really special species. And um, in at times, the Alexander Archipelago, the islands that make up the Tongass National Forest, has been called the Galapagos of the North. Um, obviously, mm. uh, very different than the Galapagos, but very similarly, an island archipelago where this diversity is is found in very cool ways. Like there are islands where there's only black bears, um, islands where there's only brown bears, islands where there's only wolves, um, islands where there's coastal marten, islands where there's American pine marten, which are two different species of weasels that were discovered mm. in the region. So there's just so many cool stories unfolding across each of those islands. Uh, this is a tangent, but um, you had a picture of a pine marten on your your little avatar when you signed on and i saw in one of your bios online that you live with one is that your pet <laughs> no it's not <laughs> um okay i live with the ones that are wild and free in the trees they just happen to be around us in my yurt <laughs> okay i was like wow that's uh an interesting I've, I've seen two in the wild now and i consider myself very lucky because that's not a, a usual sight especially where i am in colorado i mean they're around but you just don't usually see them so um they're one of my favorite animals anyways the other thing that you mentioned that i wanted to talk about was the the regrowth the the second stage after clear cutting people kind of argue well the forest will grow back uh and will heal itself why is that and let's talk about why that's not exactly right and the type of growth that follows clear cutting yeah um that's a very common uh, misconception about how a forest grows back. And it's also been one of the arguments um, made for aggressive timber harvest is this is a renewable resource. We even addressed this in the film. Um, when we look at an old growth rainforest, we can't really say that it's a renewable resource, at least in terms of the lifetime of several human generations. Um, an old growth rainforest from the perspective of an ecologist um, or from the perspective of someone who understands the traditional uses of the forest, maybe looking at a forest that takes eight or 900 years in order to evolve into that old growth temperate rainforest that we walk through, say, in some of those uh, shots within the film, regrowth will take many hundreds of years. And so as that regrowth takes shape, it's also opening up the ability to say introduce new species, which we've seen more of on islands like Prince of Wales, um, introduced weeds from roads. Um, it also allows different species of trees to take over. So um, some trees are more um, aggressive growers with open light than others. And so um, trees like hemlock will do really well while they'll shade out the spruce. Um, and so it takes spruce a lot longer to gain ground. And same with uh, red cedar and yellow cedar. Once they get going, they'll be able to, you know, to compete with hemlock, but they won't at first. Um, yeah. So there's a. I think Elsa described it as a dog hair growth. Yeah. That dense, dense forest that follows that is not performing the same as the old growth. Yep, exactly. So those those dense second growth stands, um, which cover a lot of acres in southeast Alaska now, um, are these areas where there's no understory and there's just a very dense closed canopy that will exist for, you know, 80 to 100 years in some cases. 
Yeah. So where do we stand now with at a federal level with protections? Um, I, I know that the Clinton administration in 2001 introduced the roadless rule to protect a vast area of this forest from clear cutting and from uh, essentially putting in roads to access those areas. Uh, our last administration, the Trump administration, repealed those protections, and now Biden has reinstated some of them. Where, where are we now? Yeah. <laughs> um, on, a, on a yo-yo, right? <laughs> on a yo-yo. Yeah. Um, As right. usual. So right now, um, where it stands is the Biden administration, as, as you mentioned, is um, undergoing a public comment period. So from now until the end of January, anyone in the entire United States can send in a comment to the federal government asking for protections to be reinstated for the roadless rule on the Tongass National Forest. So I did it yesterday, folks. I'll put up the link. <laughs> awesome. Everyone should yeah. write a comment in support if you if you love roadless national forests um, and wildlife. So that comment period's open, after which point the federal government will look at all the comments and make a decision to either reinstate the roadless rule on the Tongass or make others some other recommendation. Simultaneously, there is an advocacy effort in the U.S. Congress to establish a law called the Roadless Area Conservation Act that would codify into law permanent protections for all roadless areas across the entire United States. And what that hmm. does is it would prevent us from going back and forth with every presidential administration. Like, oh, this president supports the rule. This president doesn't support the rule. And one thing that we know is as divided as Congress is, the United States, the, the people of this country are not divided on roadless. In 2001, when Clinton passed the, the roadless rule, it received over a million comments, more public comments than any other rule in the history of the United States government. And most wow. of those comments, over 90% of them were in favor of protecting roadless areas. So we have a long legacy of people loving our national forest lands, loving them roadless. And so to ask for that codification into law is not some partisan ask. It's actually something that most Americans have supported for over two decades. That's interesting. I, we, we saw a similar thing just uh, the last couple of years with the Bristol Bay, the Pebble Mine Project, with a huge public response, I think partially solicited from organizations like Audubon, Trout Unlimited, people who were boots on the ground going, hey, this, this gold mine could devastate um salmon populations if something goes wrong i think the you know the verdict the verdict is in in some ways like in terms of like you said the the support for these type of things from the american public but in watching your film it seems like it's so important to me that these decisions are made by locals partially or that they have a a you know a large weight in the decisions because Previous to watching this film, I probably could not have pointed out on a map exactly where uh, Prince of Wales Island is. I probably, uh, I know that I didn't know the scale of what was happening there. Most of us don't know about these problems. They're invisible to us. And so to give more, more power to local government and local communities, I think, in these decision-making processes is really important for long-term 
you know, protection of them. Yeah, definitely. And I think when it comes to our federal lands, like national forests, like the Tongass, it's that um, kind of amazing marriage between local knowledge and local advocacy with uh, national level attention and national support. Because Mm -hmm. the reality is, it takes, you know, millions of people (laughs) engaging in the public process to make um, to make things happen. Um, Yeah. Alaska is a unique example, I think, because something like 65% of Alaska is federally managed and a very small percentage of Americans live in Alaska. And so it's kind of a hinterland in a way where we're extracting raw materials, we're mining, we're, we're logging at a vast scale that a lot of us aren't seeing. And so I'm kind of, I'm really interested in this problem because generally I think yeah, take more power from the federal government, give it to local communities. Great. In this situation, that seems um, especially pertinent. But in, I mean, a lot of these places, no one lives there, right? In you know certain parts of Alaska. Yeah, or they're or they're primarily um, traditional villages, um, small communities that may be completely without roads or, or um, contemporary infrastructure. And the only way to get to them is by boat or by plane. And the issues that they face are disproportionate to what one community government can often take on. So you might be a very small village, say on the Ambler, um, on the Ambler Road project corridor, which is you know a massive 211 mile road that would cut through Western Alaska and you're a small village, you may be less than a hundred people. It's very cold in the winter, there's flooding, there's all these all these day-to-day issues to deal with that are huge for a community. And then on top of it, you're expected to continually respond to federal government asks regarding very complicated permits for roads and mining projects. And so that's where it takes all of us working together across all geographies because a road Um, For example, the Ambler Road will cut through a national park. So there is a federal um, nexus and there is a reason for public process. But then there are these local communities that may be either in support or against that project. And so all of those issues are supposed to be weighed. And what we saw um, for the last several years is that that public process that all of this rests on was just not being given much attention. And um, that's, you know, at at kind of the base of everything, all these issues that we've talked about, the real important part, which is providing that space for people to have to come to agreement um, as the public on how we want to steward our lands and waters into the future. Um, And that's, it's huge, right? But it's, it's really cool that we have in this country, these public processes so that we all can engage. Yeah, and I think it's equally cool that now we can see what's happening with films like this. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, I never would have found out about this problem. So, um, you know, we, we touched on this briefly, the kind of the economics of it all in terms of... So let me back up. When I spoke previously to um, Brian Yablonski of Property Environment Research Center, we talked about... The some of the issues with the timber market, at least in parts of the West, is that foreign export was banned in the uh, 
latter part of the 20th century. There's a lot of places in the West where you cannot harvest timber and export it. And domestic demand for timber has been relatively low. And so we've got this huge problem with all these this standing timber that the Forest Service is saying we need to get in there and, and clear or selectively manage a lot of this. Uh, again, this is fire-dependent landscapes, so a little bit different. But that's an argument for, well, why, why aren't we exporting timber? That's a you know an American product. It's a renewable resource. We should be able to get, get in there and do what we need to do. This is sort of a completely different situation where the foreign export is also not working for us. Like we said, we're losing money on it. These are not forests that necessarily need to be managed at the same in the same way as the Western landscape. You know, what is the way forward to kind of address the economic issues here? How do we make this work for Americans? Yeah, um, in Southeast Alaska, you know, the, the narrative um, in support of timber production has been, well, we need it in order to keep the industry alive. And there hasn't been a formal timber industry since the late 1990s when the pulp contracts um, from the big mills were, were finalized and the mills were shut down. And, and so it's been a series of native corporation and forest service subsidiary activities since then. The timber industry, you know, depending on the numbers, employs somewhere between 40 and 100 people in all of Southeast Alaska now. So it's, a, it's less than 1% of the economy for the whole region. Wait a minute. 40, and a, 40 to 100 people employed in that entire area? In the entire region of Southeast Alaska in the timber industry. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, it's... Uh, but it's it's the story you tell, right? And so the story has been um, from our dele our Alaska delegation, our Congress members, that there is this industry. And the reality is there hasn't been an industry in 20 years. And these aren't my numbers. You know, these are numbers from the Southeast Conference, the kind of economic review committee of Southeast Alaska economies. So you have an industry that's less than 1% of all of the economic industries for Southeast Alaska. The big ones are government, um, state and federal government employment, um, medical, uh, schools, um, so, you know, all that, all that kind of in government um, infrastructure, and then commercial fishing and tourism. So those are the big ones. Okay. And so what we're really talking about is an identity. Um, Southeast Alaska, um, many communities identify as logging communities, and, and that's... Um, that's important to recognize and to understand because you don't just come into a community and say, okay, you're not a timber community anymore. Now you're a tourism community. Um, you have to give communities the ability to transition into their future on their timelines. And that's really challenging. So you look at what's happening all throughout Appalachia, the coal mining communities are decimated. They, you know, they relied on that, and it's a when that all dries up, it's like, what's our identity? What's our livelihood? It's a huge problem. Yeah, and it's not unique. I mean, it actually, Appalachia is a great parallel. It's not. This is not unique to Southeast Alaska. It's not even unique to all their parts of Alaska. Alaska has been, as you mentioned, mostly an extraction state. Um, you know, most of our tax dollars, um, most of our, our money for the state government comes from oil and gas tax revenue. 
and that's changing. You know, oil is not needed as much, and we're we're on the on the edge of a massive infrastructure shift across the world um, in terms of getting off oil. And so this idea of transition and how you make those transitions is something that so many communities are facing across the globe. Um, and so it's it's a combination of, yeah, where's the economy, as, as you mentioned, and also how do we address identity? We all have identities um, based on our living circumstances. And I feel like sometimes communities are left behind. People will say, well, you just have to transition, just deal with it. Um, without having the ability for the community to decide its destiny. But also there are going to be these bigger um, political powers at play that are going to kind of guide our destiny in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's always important to look at, uh, you know, indigenous knowledge and, and people who have been there, like you said, since before we even, it's longer than we know probably. But um, it's a complex problem, especially when you have a lot of people moving to Alaska now, from what I under, from what I understand. And like you said, that kind of that transition happening. This is something that you wrote about a little bit about what to expect from in the transition to renewable resource. Uh, I'm sorry, to renewable energy. And you talked about the cost that that will have on Alaska, the continued cost of mineral extraction. Can you kind of expound on that for the listeners? Yeah, um, the cost of, of mineral extraction extends beyond like the immediate cost, right? Of There's the social cost. There's a cost to communities when mineral extraction occurs. Um, that includes the actual cost of roads and ports because something like mining isn't just about the actual mine. That's what makes it into the news. But, you know, what really happens first is you build the infrastructure. Alaska doesn't have a lot of roads. It doesn't have a lot of ports. And so you usually have to build the roads and the ports in order to get the mining ore out of a community and into the market. And so there's a cost with each of those. And in some cases, it might be a direct cost to another industry. I live in a small community in uh, Haines, Alaska, that has a mining project at the headwaters of the Chilkat and Klahini rivers. And in order for that mine to go into production, they had to start revamping the road um, and, and start and straightening the road. And what they did by straightening the road is they got rid of a lot of the natural curves of the road that was next to the river, um, removing uh, spawning salmon habitat. And so mm. you have a commercial fishing industry that relies on that accessibility of salmon spawning habitat, especially now as climate change continues to warm our waters. And if you straighten a road, you remove that salmon habitat, but you provide a road for a new industry that's a mine, but that industry is only going to last so long. And so you're also asking as a community, well, what do we want to be after that mine is there? And so there's all these costs that we don't, you know, we don't talk about. Um, yeah. Even even in the Tongass, when we talk about a timber sale, people forget that it's not just a timber sale, it's building the roads, it's getting the logs out, it's the fuel for the barges that, that will take the logs, it's who, where the crew's going to stay when they come and they log, because all of this is done in very remote places. Yeah, I think there's, there's all of those costs, and then specifically kind of what I'm thinking about is the, the fact that 
electric car batteries and cell phones and solar panels and all the things that we're trying to move toward all require raw materials. And a lot of those come from places like Alaska. Minerals that um, you don't even know what they are, like molybdenum and barite. And it's like, all right, what are these? What does this actually look like? You, you look it up and you see these pit mines where gold comes from. It's like, man, there is absolutely nothing that we do on Earth that doesn't have an impact somewhere else. It's so true. And you're right. Like, I, I feel like one of the biggest conundrums, you know, a consumption conundrum for all of us is the fact that everything we do takes resources and a transition from say oil and gas to renewables will require a lot of rare earth minerals, right? Those, those, um, composite, those compounds that you just mentioned and many more. And Alaska is one of the places in the world where a lot of those deposits are located. Um, sometimes they're hiding under glaciers, but there's a significant amount of those raw materials. And so it's not just a question of that transition from one thing to the other, but also how do we reuse what's already in production? Um, how do we reduce the amount of things we actually buy and consume? Um, and those are the harder questions, right? Like we know we need to just consume less, but that gets harder and harder to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's no clear answer, but I think um, becoming aware of the issues and like I said, just seeing video and foot video footage and, and photographs of what's happening in these places far, far away where we think of it as just untouched wilderness. Uh, it's really not, it's a, it's a part of our supply chain. And so I definitely encourage people to go to uh, laststands.org. You can watch the film under story and you can sign the petition if you're so inclined uh, that we, that we mentioned earlier, or you can make public comment, I should say. Uh, let's talk about your work with Audubon Alaska and kind of some of the things that you guys are interested in uh, on a large scale up there. Yeah. Um, so Audubon Alaska, though Audubon is kind of known as a bird-centric organization, we work um, on a lot of different wildlife and conservation issues across the state. Um, my home and, and heart lies in Southeast Alaska, but that doesn't um, limit the amount of work that we do in different places. Um, if we kind of think about our big picture issues, um, we're trying to support um, the, the new opportunities for indigenous led conservation efforts and protections across Alaska. So we're a part of some really exciting work in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge with um, the Amago Initiative. Um, Amago is the biological term for a um, caterpillar before it comes a butter before it becomes a butterfly. Um, mm. What are called the imaginal cells, and the Amago Initiative is a um, initiative led by the Wilderness Society to bring um, a dialogue space. Um, for indigenous community leaders, for tribal governments, for indigenous-led organizations to discuss what permanent protections for the Arctic refuge could look like through an indigenous lens, um, bringing in that knowledge that's been part of the land and water there since time immemorial. So that's a really exciting project that we've been happy to support. Last year, um, we helped bring over 20 uh, Inupiat and Gwich'in and conservation leaders to the Arctic Refuge for a week of dialogue on the banks of the Hula Hula River. 
Um, so that's kind of like one of the things we like to do is, is create space for people to talk about these really complicated ideas around land ownership and land protection that can often, often create immediate division, even within the conservation community and, and creating those spaces for learning together. Um, and in some cases, unlearning. So we're doing that work. Uh, we're also focused a lot on um, how we can build proactive policies to steward land and water um, protections into the future in Alaska. And one of those ways is by um, looking at ways to protect wetlands through mitigation programs that exist in other parts of the United States, but don't exist here in Alaska. Um, and then our third bucket is just encouraging the public to be engaged on all issues relating to shared lands and waters. Um, so that is a lot of um, advocacy and education, right? So when there's a comment period on um, the roadless rule on the Tongass that we host webinars and we put blog posts up and send information out to members and the public so that people will engage in the process and use their voice to help support land and water conservation. Great. Yeah, um, that's a great summary. You mentioned the, the wetland mitigation pro, um, programs that exist in other parts of the West. Can you tell me how those work? Yeah. Um, it Basically, if a development project wants to go forward that is going to impact a wetland area, and a wetland is not only like a pond, um, it's also an area that could be next to a river or an estuary at the entrance of an ocean. Um, so a wetland has a pretty broad definition. If you want to develop a wetland in a place like Montana or Colorado, you have to apply for a permit and you have to mitigate that impact. You have to conserve a wetland area somewhere else or restore that wetland area after the development project takes place. We have an exemption for that in Alaska that allows development projects to move forward without doing mitigation. And so when we think about going back to your comment about mining and the extractive state of Alaska, we also have some of the worst environmental laws in Alaska that that exist in other places. So right now, you know, you could hypothetically put a big mine in a wetland area and not have to do any mitigation at all. We're I see. We're, okay. we're working on a really strange case right now where there's a gold mining reality TV show that's trying to dredge 300 acres of eelgrass in an incredibly sensitive um, subsistence fishing and hunting area near Nome, Alaska. The place is called Safety Sound. Um, it's, it's a very important migratory bird stopover place, and it brings birders from all over the world to look at birds every spring. It's, a, it's an important bird area designated by Audubon. Um, this area is facing the threat of losing most of its habitat because a reality TV show from Las Vegas wants to dredge for gold. Um, wow. And there's no mitigation uh, being required. <laughs> so um, I could tell stories like this all day where, you know, so to what Audubon does is try to look at, you know, the strategy, like when that issue arises, how can we help that one place that also then can benefit many other places in Alaska because it's so big, you know, it's one fifth of the United States landmass. How can we do something here that can resonate across the entire landscape? 
That's great. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that idea of like, I think a lot of us living in the lower 48 have this idea that, again, that it's like the last frontier and no one's up there developing it or ruining it and it's all pristine and um, that's not what's happening, folks. So that's cool. Yeah, people support support Audubon Alaska. They're doing awesome work, as you can hear. One of the cool things that you guys put up that I was just clicking around on this morning was your Survival by Degrees report and this sort of interactive website. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, the Survival by Degrees report came out in uh, late 2019. And um, we've done some follow-up advocacy outreach with that report. And it was basically a study to look at the um, possibility of bird extinction or range, uh, um, range retraction with climate change. And so we took those, those two temperatures that tend to stand out, right? When you hear about climate change, it's like we need to keep things below 1.5 degrees Celsius if we get... If we get above that, it gets real bad. And so we took yeah. the, the, those climate thresholds and looked at 387 different species of birds, um, or I think 389 species of birds. And we looked at what happens to those birds if we don't meet these climate thresholds, if we can't keep our carbon below certain levels and warming temperatures continue to rise, what happens to birds across North America? And in that report, we pull out, you know, some pretty startling um, results like, you know, loons in the Midwest will basically have to either shift north or go extinct in the next 50 years. Um, even in Alaska, we start to see the contraction and the loss of some species like emperor geese, which are a very important food source for a lot of communities on the Yukon and Kuskokwim rivers. Um, they're predicted to go extinct. Um, the entire global population of emperor geese exist in Alaska. Um, wow. So there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of, uh, as you probably saw in the report, there's a lot of like sad stories, but we also provide some pretty specific prescriptions on how we can make changes in order to avoid those catastrophic losses. And so that's what our report was also meant to do was illustrate what's happening and then provide people an opportunity to see how they can help. Yeah. Yeah, it's another great resource. It's You can enter your zip code and it'll kind of show you what this looks like, what birds are there and where they may be displaced based on climate change models. I've seen similar things with uh, with wine growing, grape growing areas across the world and these historic areas where grapes have traditionally thrived it kind of shows you where these, you know, will be pushed to uh, in the face of a warming climate. So, yeah, go to that, folks. It's the Survival by Degrees report if you just want to learn about the birds in your area, at the least. Um, lastly, Natalie, in a previous email um, exchange, you talked about how you were going out into some remote wilderness to teach about the land ethic. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, Um I think when we were exchanging emails, I was headed out to um, take a group of students with the Wild Rockies Field Institute, a program um, based in Missoula, Montana that I've taught for for years. We were headed out into uh, eastern Montana, um, into the Bighorn River country for a couple of weeks to look at you know, land ethic and climate change resilience in small communities. Um, and 
I've spent a lot of years teaching uh, the land ethic to students in various capacities, often, you know, on the land with the benefit and privilege of being in a beautiful wild place while talking about the idea of a land ethic and what it means to be in right relationship with the natural world, um, which is individual, but also um, we, you know, we connect to a land ethic because it's, you know, at, at the core of its concept, it's the idea that we extend this moral code that we abide by as humans from one to another to the natural world, to our non-human relatives and the spaces that they occupy. Um, and so that's what I was doing, I think, when you and I started um, exchanging emails. That's a great, uh, that's a great summary. I think it's a, it's a concept that I think Leopold meant it to be ever-changing. He talked about it as a, as a community, as an ethos, not as a set idea, but rather as a, as a morality kind of. And so um, I think he would be, he'd be happy to hear the way that you described it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it. you're right, exactly. It, it continues to change as any relationship changes. And as the natural world um, with which we, you know, approach our, our um, with our land ethic, you know, that right relationship, what is the right relationship? It will continue to change because the world changes. And so it may be that, you know, we think about that relationship in terms of of celebration and ceremony for the return of a season, or it may be that our relationship is one where we learn how to mourn the loss of a species or a place as, as changes occur, or it may be both. Um, so it's, it's definitely something I, I believe anyway, that was meant to change and evolve with time. Um, and I'm just excited to know, you know, that, that it continues to be carried on that every generation thinks of, of this relationship with, um, with, with the non-human world. Um, that's also part of the human world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I completely agree. Uh, is there, are there other things that you want p folks to know about other upcoming projects or, or things that you think the listeners might be interested in? Um, I would just, uh, encourage everyone to, um, to follow along with public lands issues that might be happening wherever your community is located. Um, most likely there are public lands and waters somewhere um, nearby that touch you um, or a place that you love and care about. And right now there's some exciting opportunities to engage at a national level on public lands and waters. The Biden administration has an open comment period on what's called 30 by 30, which is this idea that um, we want to protect 30% of our lands and waters in the United States by 2030. So um, if you Google 30 by 30 Biden, you'll probably come across the public comment period. And of course, um, as we've talked a lot about the Tongass today, the comment period is open until the end of January for um, reinstating the roadless rule. But even after the comment period's over, you can always write the Forest Service and uh, tell them about your interest in conserving um, the wild places in Southeast Alaska. Great, great. Yeah, you know, it's easier than ever to do this stuff. Like I follow a handful of people on social media or I'm on an email lists and they send me an issue and I try to read through them to make sure I'm not blindly signing things. But, uh, you know, if it's something that I that I agree with strongly, it takes two minutes to fill out a little comment card and say, and usually they're like pre-filled out for you and you can just sign your name and say, dear Senator, whatever, 
please consider this. And I don't know if it makes a difference, but I like to think it does. And they, they always say, people in public office always say, like, we want to hear more from you. You know, people don't take advantage of those things enough. Yeah, I. So. that's awesome. I mean, I hear that a lot, too. It's like, it's amazing that that our leaders don't hear from us more than they, you know, more than they do. So I that it is, it's true. The more we can reach out and give our input, um, the more we're taking part of the democratic process that that runs this country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Natalie, I really appreciate your time. I, I certainly appreciate your work and exposing folks to to things like this that, uh, like I said, we may never otherwise have known about. So um, the call to action is for for everyone who's interested to go to laststands.org, watch the film. It's short. It's beautifully shot. It's uh, You'll enjoy it. Uh, support Audubon. And uh, Natalie, I look forward to... Uh, to continue to support you guys and hopefully we'll meet up someday that sounds great thanks so much <laughs> all right take care take care